0: Hello, it's James Russell here. I'm the author of the Dragon Brothers trilogy of children's picture books and the Dragon Defenders series. I've also written two adult novels, Mine and Lines. When I listen to Philip Temple's story of his early publishing career, I'm reminded of my own, in that he often flew blind but was unafraid to take the next step or simply take a risk with his publishing decisions. He has also been a wonderful advocate for New Zealand writers throughout the years, and although we've never met, I'm very grateful to him for all the work he's done. I like to imagine him rambling in the mountains, dreaming up his next book, and listening to this podcast is like sitting down with him on a winter's night around a fire and listening to the stories he has to tell. It's a wonderful listen, and I hope you enjoy it. Temple has been a professional writer in New Zealand for nearly half a century. He's held many of our top residencies, was made an officer of the New Zealand Order of Merit for services to literature, and has been the recipient of a Prime Minister's Award for Literary Achievement. He's also been a campaigner on behalf of writers in Aotearoa for many years. In 2015, Philip talked with Deborah Shepard about his early books which document his mountaineering adventures, starting with his first book, Nawok.
1: When I started to plan this expedition to New Guinea in 1960, I was just 21, I wanted, you know, I was keen on writing, obviously, and and had this idea at that time of following a mountaineering career and writing books about it all. And I, I thought, well, one way to finance myself on this trip is to get a book contract. So I went along to the library to see who was publishing the kind of books, uh, you know, a book about expeditions, and there were three publishers and um, I just wrote to them and said, explained it and, and asked for a contract and uh, two of the three said yes. Mm. And then I got a contract um, and I had a good friend who had a look at it and said, might be an idea if you have a lawyer, have a quick look at it. and um, so a friendly lawyer had a look and said, oh, well, this looks all right, he said, except for one thing there, he said, it's got an option clause in it, which means that if you, uh, you're you obliged to give them the option for the next book, But well, what if this book's a huge bestseller and you don't want to give it to them? And so I had it struck out, so right from the beginning I was getting the right kind of advice yes. and yep. following it through.
2: And who and, was and the it, publisher of it?
1: J.M. Dent, who no longer mm. exists. Mm, in London. Uh, yeah, mm. in London, yeah. But they were connected also to wickham and Tombs here, so it was kind of a joint edition, uh-huh. yeah. Mm.
2: Um, so, so it was a very ambitious book, wasn't it? You must have read books by explorers. Oh,
1: yes. Uh, they, one of the great seminal experiences after I came out here, when I came out, I, I, I came out um, direct from London, and about a year after leaving grammar school, and um, at, at that time, I was I was top of the school of G C in English language and geography. I think it was. it was it was all very appropriate. and second in history, you know, sort of mm.
2: <laughs> that
1: kind of those subjects have sort of followed through. Mm-hmm. And um, but I was writing a lot of poetry, and then I had a job as an editor or assistant on technical publications. But then when I had finished the first ob- obligatory two years with the people who had sponsored me on the immigration scheme in Wellington. I went south to Christchurch with, uh, following, actually, my immediate boss who came from there and he'd gone back. And he'd done some climbing. And his name? Uh, Doug MacDonald was his name. He was a real support because I was out here without any family. Mm-hmm. And... Um, but I'd also done the compulsory military training, the last compulsory course, and during the course of that, I met a Christchurch guy who does some climbing too, and so. And he was. Alan Norfolk, and we went up to Arthur's Pass in September 1959 uh, to have a look around, and it was a. a if it's kind of road to Damascus epiphany, that's Mm -hmm. one of the most outstanding ones for me, Yes, because he was going to come up on his motorbike and I caught the old rail car and they used to stop wherever you wanted them to stop (laughs) and you'd jump out into the night. And um, I sort of vaguely knew where I was going and went round to Klondike Corner, which is a famous sort of point on the west coast road. And it was a clear spring night with the mountains covered in snow. And looking up that valley and I was just blown away and I just became obsessed with um, exploring and climbing and Mm. thought this is it and Mm. read all the books and and just about everything that had been published and Mm. uh, my heroes were the British explorers uh, Shipton and Tillman, Eric Shipton and Bill Tillman, you know, who wrote these marvellous books and did all this Himalayan climbing. And um, so that's it. Um, I'm going to climb mountains and write books about it like they did.
2: (laughs) Lovely. And the the passage about that, you write it in your memoir, uh, about getting off the train, Um, the writing there is really lovely. And I was thinking it's the kind of... The writing in Beak of the Moon is just so beautifully descriptive and lyrical and your observations of light and weather and the birds the keers um, it's just lovely lovely writing and where does that come from that 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 lyri- lyricism and
1: i don't really know i mean yeah um, the, the coming back to the books i was reading i guess um, i wasn't
2: it's inspiration r- isn't it that that's it, what you can feel behind the pen you you're yeah. so inspired by the beauty of this landscape. oh yes
1: i mean the thing is that I'd never seen things on this scale before. It was just, you know, unbelievably big. And um, it, it became um, such a passion that I wanted to be there all the time. And it, I don't quite understand, uh, as I say, coming from England, um, why um, I became so obsessed uh, with with the New Zealand mountains. It was the it was was the way I became a New Zealander. I think if I hadn't uh, become a mountaineer and and into the outdoors, I'm not quite sure what would have happened. Mm. Whether I might have gone back, because there's always this possibility, up until I got married actually, 65, that my, there was a kind of expectation from my mother over there that I was eventually going to go back. And I remember planning to go back in 65 after the Heard Island expedition and seriously... That I, Antar- uh, I've
2: Antar- that's Antarctica yes, the Herd Island, yeah. Yes,
1: the sub-Antarctic expedition. You climbed a volcano. Yes, yeah. yeah. And we sailed a schooner down there. Yeah. Um, and I definitely... I, I, I came across a letter... She kept all my letters to her, and I was looking through them and I saw one where I was about to leave the Solomon Islands, where I'd been collecting animals and insects, to join the expedition and saying at the end of it, oh, I'm, I'm coming back. Um, but then in between times I met my wife and got married and didn't. But it was, it was definitely the mountains that... Um,
2: Can I comment something yeah. I was thinking about there? Because you wrote a lot of mobile um, guides to the walking tracks, yes. w- which entailed walking all those tracks.
1: Oh yeah, yeah.
2: And all the places that you've been, you must know this country so much better than most of us. You, you must really yeah. understand the topography, what's where, and I mean, what better way to actually become really identified that's, that's, with the that's place. That's true, yeah. It's amazing. Um,
1: but what happened, I think the way that I got very close to the environment was that, um, was through books because I, when I started to write about the New Zealand mountains, my first two books were about expeditions and the third one was about um, New Zealanders on expeditions overseas. But then the book after that uh, I, I was a photographic book mantle of the skies, the Southern Alps. And I discovered that I was quite a good photographer.
2: Where did you get that? Did you have any training in it?
1: No, but, it, but when I was still in England, I remember getting a, a camera for a um, birthday present or something and becoming really interested in photography. I've still got some of those early photographs that I took in London. I, mm. I don't know. I, mm. I just became very interested. Then, because you go on expeditions, of course you're taking photographs mm. and slowly develop some skills... So then I sold the idea of doing a big photographic book on the mountains to um, Whitcomb and Tombs. And what that did mm-hmm. uh, when I actually went into the mountains to take pictures mm-hmm. um, I, I started to see the environment much closer. Yes. Right down to the lichens and the, and yes. the rocks and, mm-hmm. and this sort of thing. and then I, uh-huh. So then I started to develop a much Deeper interest yes, beyond just explaining the be- mountains and it climbing. Speak
2: of the moon to me now. You're saying exactly. that because it's the detail and the is exceptional.
1: Yeah, and the um, and of course, right from that very okay. first trip in the mountains, the crows were there, yeah. and of course they uh, were often a nuisance as they can be, but I grew to. I'd always had a, an interest in birds, even way back um, to childhood and boarding school times. I remember my interest in watching birds. So I always had this interest in birds. And then prior, uh, later on, up in New Guinea and Solomons, I was actually collecting them mm-hmm. and working with an ornithologist to start with. And I learned a hell of a lot about ornithology on the ground. Mm-hmm. And saw all these different kinds of birds and understood yeah. um, their sort of Role in the environment, and of course, up in New Guinea there's, there's a range of different kinds of parrots.
2: And you did initially, you did, you were writing poetry. You were to wanting with. to make your way. And as I had a book published, yeah. Yes, and Louis Johnson was. Yeah,
1: and Louis Johnson, of course, um, there's a fellowship named after him uh, for younger writers because he, he he was such a nice guy and generous and supportive to young people. And um, yeah, I kept in touch with him over all the years, and. Um, so he, he published a little bit of mine. And
2: where did he publish it?
1: I had a couple of poems in a thing called New Zealand Poetry Yearbook, which nice. he edited, yeah. Mm. And that was my first published work. Mm. But, but then he... I shifted to Christchurch and discovered the mountains and the poetry went out the window.
2: Right.
1: And uh, because I realised I wasn't that good as a poet because I tried Landfall and they, they didn't like my stuff at all. So then the whole thing shifted and... It was mountains and writing about mountains.
2: To novels, that's what I want to know. I want to know how you make the move between genres. You started out writing non-fiction and then was Beak of the Moon the first novel?
1: No, no, I'd written two before that. Okay. Um, the first one was a short novel based on uh, uh, Charlie Douglas, Mr Explorer Douglas and his his journey up the Waiatoto and um, it was to do about... The bush and survival in the mountains. Um, it, it was. It's not bad. But, um, the actual part of where he's in the bush and the mountains is, is pretty successful. Um, then the second one was about set in a high country station called Stations, and um, that originally was intended to be part of a series, you know, it's sort a of generational thing. Mm-hmm. But um, it uh, it didn't work out that way. I. Probably because I was had a uh, was not actually part of that. I, it was kind of a roman- semi-romantic or um, view of, of that high country lifestyle and the pioneers and all that sort of thing. And then, then came back to the moon. That was where I found my way into the, the mountain area properly. Yeah.
2: So to to make the shift to the first one, were the books that you read to inspire? how did you know how to write a novel?
1: Well, I guess I was um, (laughs) uh, I didn't these days, of course, you can always create writing courses Hmm. I I sometimes think, what if I'd had them when I was young? And I guess I would probably uh, have gone on one, uh, probably Mm. because I was really just finding out, just by reading Mm. novels and then um, finding my way Um, I suppose that, like a lot of young blokes of that time, uh, for a period I was reading um, Ernest Hemingway, Mm -hmm. before that I read all the Hornblower books, it was sort of between um, you know Swallows and Amazons and Biggles and the next lot was Hornblower the C.S. Forrester and uh, you know the very detailed stories of the Napoleonic Wars and um, and then moved into Hemingway um, and also um, I was kind influenced almost indirectly by George Orwell. Not uh, the, one of the most influential things ever was not the book 1984 uh, initially, but the dramatization of it on television mm. in 1955, I think it was. And um, they only had one channel in those days or maybe the other one had just started. And the BBC used to have this drama on a Sunday night. They would film parts of it, but the rest of it was actually live in the studio. And then, but then they put, it was, they managed to put it on videotape, which was quite advanced then. And then they would repeat it the following Thursday. And it caused a sensation. It was in the papers, and said we must not screen this. Uh, it should not be screened again. You know, it's got kind of frightening, sort of totalitarianism. But it was, and we, I don't think we had a TV then. And we, we went, I seem to remember, we went somewhere to watch it, and I remi- I can still see scenes from it. So that was very influential, um, especially later on. But his his, his standard of writing uh, is the point that Hemingway and George Orwell, their actual uh, language and style um, have always been a big influence on me, uh, more than probably any other writers, I think.
2: Mm
0: You're listening to the NZSA Oral History Podcast. We'll be back to the podcast in a moment, but we wanted to take this opportunity to let you know about the new online Writer Toolkit. From getting a new project started to negotiating a contract, the Writer Toolkit will take you through a year's worth of learning about craft and industry. Taught by experienced writing professionals, the Writer Toolkit will contain pre-recorded online content with writing exercises or assignments which you can work through at your own pace. Visit authors.org.nz to learn more. Philip Temple has been a member of the New Zealand Society of Authors for over half a century, first joining in 1970. At the time, he was living in Wellington and working for The Listener magazine. In 2015, he told Deborah Shepherd about the first NZSA meeting he can remember attending.
1: When I uh, joined The Listener, in 1968, I'd had two books published, Now Walk In The Sea In The Snow. And then in 1969, my third book was published while I was on The Listener. And the following year, 1970, it won third prize in the Wattie Awards. That was the third year of the Wattie Awards. They started in 1968. And following this, um, Alex Fry, who was a senior journalist on The Listener and was a member of Penn, um, I remember him approaching me and saying, I think you'd better join Penn because, um, you know, you've had three books published, mm-hmm. one, one an award. And the way it worked in this is you had to be invited. To be eligible, you had to have had at least one book published. I can't remember whether you had to be seconded as well. I, I think you did. So um, I joined up and I've been a member ever since. Um, and I remember going to a few meetings um, I remember the first, probably the first one. I think Neva Clark McKenna was the president at the time, mm. and it's all very a bit strange to me. And um, but it's quite interesting to meet a few of the um, people. I remember one uh, must have been a Christmas party event, and uh, Marie Bullock was the secretary, and I remember that Joy Cowley turned up, and of course this was a long time ago, and um, I think she was still married to. Uh, a lawyer, Mason, I think, and um, and Dennis Glover, who got promptly got drunk, of course, and um, but I didn't really uh, start to take any part until later. Uh, I moved. I got to know Alistair Campbell quite well. He became president of Penn. and at the time it was basically a Wellington organisation, uh, but there was uh, a branch starting up in Auckland, and and um, there was this traditional rivalry between the two. And um, which culminated in the uh, London flat business. But anyway, um, when I went south in 72, um, Alistair said to me, uh, there were no, there were no uh, branches down here or anything, but in 76, uh, when he was president, he said, Oh, why don't you become South Island Vice President? Try and sort of, you know, <laughs> raise the profile somehow from Little Akalawa. I remember. We, we ha- I, I organised a couple of meetings of local writers and editors and um, one rather pathetic one was at, at Little Ekeloa where I invited people out for the day because Tom Keneally was over here visiting mm-hmm. I don't think he was very impressed with the uh, with the people who were there <laughs> and I took him for a walk around the local hills and then um, with Penn um, you off, Yes I was when I f- first went freelance in 72 the campaign to get the public lending right, or or the authors fund, as it was initially known, had built up through Penn. John Pascoe and one or two others had started the thing, and then uh, Ian Cross became president of Penn, and he was working for Feltex at the time, you know, the carpet company. And he managed to persuade Feltex to actually fund a survey of writers' incomes, which we knew uh, it showed, you know, a pathetic sort of income that writers had. So he used this to approach the government, and Morris Shadbot was involved too, uh, supporting this and doing what he could, and one or two others, but it was Ian Cross really who drove this, and it, so this is 1972, I, what I can't recall is whether he uh, tried the national government at the time, which in 72 would have been Jack Marshall, but Norman Kirk of course was around, and he was an autodidact. and. Um, had relied so much on library books to educate himself mm-hmm. and he said yes well, we'll if we get, get in we'll do it and he did it straight almost straight away uh, but it's only a cabinet minute not a piece of legislation okay. but it came to force in 73. The concept is this it, it is that we have public libraries which are all writers support and it's such a vital part of uh, you know our education and, and social system and cultural system But they buy copies of books, and these are borrowed multiple times, and the author only gets a royalty on the one sale. So the concept was that um, the author should be recompensed for the free use of their books in public libraries. And the uh, Swedes started it first. And then when it came into effect here, we were the first English-speaking country in the world uh, to get it. So that was a very simple thing. And it was decided to do it on the basis not of borrowings, the number of times a book was borrowed, mm-hmm. because it was actually too complicated, right. and systems weren't there to do this, yeah. but simply on stocks. So there was a survey of how many copies of different New Zealand titles were held in the libraries, and they developed a system for doing this. And then there was a what had to happen was a, a book rate, uh, how much per copy held. And when the first sum was decided, um, it was really quite hilarious. Uh, I've heard this story, and I'm sure it's true. It was put in the Department of Internal Affairs, and Kirk's Minister of Internal Affairs was um, a fellow called Henry May, and he called in his Secretary of Internal Affairs and um, Ian Cross, and to have a meeting about this because they. How we're we going to do this? So they had a discussion about how to administer it, and then um, Henry May said, "Well, how much money uh, is needed?" or something. And I can't remember the exact sum, but what I do know is that Ian Cross just plucked a figure out of the air, and and, and I, the Secretary of Internal Affairs was objecting to all this, as they do. You know, we don't want to spend any more money on things. On the and and apparently Henry May said, "Well, the boss says it's going to be done, so it's going to be done." And uh, I forget the figure that Ian Cross plucked out of the air, um, but it meant that the first payout was $3 a copy held, which was very substantial. But then it started to decline. The book rate went down Mm -hmm. over the years, and it went down to as low as $1. So it's very arbitrary because it wasn't in legislation, and there was no system, there still isn't a system, for um, augmenting the amount of money available. So, on the first, they had a, an advisory committee, which was chaired alternately by an author and a librarian. Okay. On the early uh, committee, there were people like um, Keith Sinclair was chair and Carl Stead and national libra- or senior librarians. I took over Michael King's position during those years. What we would do, we'd meet once a year, and the there were people, uh, authors, sort of there were. A set of criteria involved and so we'd have to go through a whole lot of people saying well I think my book is eligible and, and then we'd have to make a ruling whether it was or not. And then we'd have invariably get round to money and invariably the uh, person who was on the secretary to, secretary to the meeting, the internal affairs person would invariably say there isn't any and then we had this ridiculous situation that um, we uh, when Labour got in, the money went up, and when National had got in, it, it got kind of frozen.
2: I'd like to move on to the name change that you you initiated the campaign nineteen ninety two to nineteen ninety four to change the name PIN to the New Zealand Society of Authors, and I'm very curious to know why why you wanted the name change. This was, was this after a con, international conference, yes. That you went um,
1: to? I was going back and forth to Berlin quite a bit and the 1991 Pen Congress is an international Pen Congress they have it annually in different centers it was in Vienna and I was in Berlin at that year and so I volunteered to go down and uh, as the main delegate so I flew down to, to Vienna and Remke Ensing was also around as well and um, we attended you know a whole range of sessions and so on And my experience of Penn, New Zealand, until that time, of course, had been like i have been talking about public lending right, and there's all kinds of other things, too, um, like uh, publishers' contracts and all these sort of rights and um, employment and and income issues that Penn was always working on. And I discovered that uh, international Penn has got nothing to do with this at all. It was founded in the 1920s, almost as a counter to the English Society of Authors, which was a kind of a trade union body, Mm -hmm. uh, set up by Arnold Bennett, I think. And it was um, John Galsworthy and co set up this pen, uh, as uh, the pen, it was called the Pen Club. It was for literary people to associate and get together and help each other and um, have nice meetings and readings and, um, Mm -hmm. and that sort of thing and there's a a lot of this and the big worthy thing that had developed was writers in prison it's a special kind of amnesty thing and i thought that was really admirable and of course should be strongly supported but the rest of it um was more uh, it was like uh, different pen branches being writers being in touch with each other and like pen pals or maybe uh, arranging meetings and and festival events and all this sort of thing. But it really had nothing to do with, uh, you know, public lending, right, um, uh, publishing contracts, um, writers' incomes or anything like that. And I came away and I thought, this is ridiculous. So um, We are actually, in New Zealand, a society of authors. And um, we need to change the name to reflect who we are. So I remember coming back in 92, and the AGM that year was in Christchurch and Kevin Ireland had been president and he he was just standing down and Chris Ellis had just become president. So I floated this at I think probably at that first meeting. So it was taken up and the um, council panel uh, the committee agreed that this was a worthwhile thing to pursue. But Chris, uh, Chris will give you more of the nuts and bolts of this uh, of what happened but broadly we thought, yes, that's a good idea, but a lot of people will be attached to the name Penn, and and also Penn is the recognised body that uh, has delegates sitting on things like the Burns Fellowship Selection Committee, so we've got to be careful about any name change. So he literally put the proposal out to all the branches for full discussion, mm. and um, before coming to any decision. the executive director at the time was Jenny Jones. So at some point all the branches were coming back and they had really good discussions and they pointed out any problems but the consensus was yes this is a good idea and we came up with this New Zealand society was brackets pen NZ Inc. ink. Then Jenny had to before it became incorporated she had to go through the register of incorporations to search to see there was nothing like that and she suddenly discovered that the New Zealand Society of Authors had been registered in Hamilton um, that year, a few months before, by Michael King and James Ritchie. And this was a deliberate move to try and stop it, without telling anybody. Why? Because Michael decided what what, what he thought was best for us. Oh. I'm afraid that Michael King became like this. He, he had this propensity in, in later on to believe he knew best about things. What happened, We we... We heard about it at a committee meeting, because Jenny said, look, this has happened. Chris was very good. He said, well, he said, I think think what I'll do, I'll write to Michael and ask him to attend our next meeting and explain why he's done this, which completely, it's like putting a pin into a balloon, because Michael backed off and, uh, you know, gave it up. But he still had a fight at an Auckland uh, meeting in which he was voted down. So we then we got changed and I think it was 94 that we the yes, change was actually made. Yes. Yeah.
2: You were saying something about over the value of overseas fellowships. Sorry, yes. Writers don't like residences yeah. so much. Yeah.
1: And I still think that what is needed is an open overseas mm. bursary. So That'd if someone fun. wants to go anywhere in the world yeah. for but but with a real project not yep. not just oh I'd like to go there but with a project of some kind for a novel, research, non-fiction, whatever, that they, people, they should say, yes, okay, uh, here's an airfare and here's whatever the stipend is, and uh, just tell us exactly what you're doing and where you're going, and then give us a report when you come back. So how, that, can
2: that, how can you make that happen?
1: Well, with Trav New Zealand, the way it is at the moment almost impossible mm-hmm. because they've become so uh, solidified into a very strict bureaucratic structure and my beef with um, the whole Kravity Zealand structure is that it was twofold. Uh, one is that, uh, believe it or not, that of their budget of, I think it's up 26, 27 million dollars a year, that only 10% of that is given to literature in all, in all shapes and forms. It is mm. disgusting. Yeah. Outrageous. Yeah. And um, they have, they kind of, the, there's a problem um, I tend to think that one of the reasons that um, um, public institutions are not very keen on writers is because they have too much to say, (laughs) whereas if if you're a dancer or a painter and so on, you're kind of controllable, you know, you might make some slightly controversial artwork, but, you know, you're not going to actually uh, criticise the politicians or, you know.
2: You initiated this oral history project that we are conducting right now. This is a stage three, so stage one. I'm not quite sure when that was. I haven't got the date in front of me. Well, it was when
1: I was president, so I guess it was 98 or 99. Mm-hmm. One of the ideas I had was... Uh, it was prompted by the fact that I had the National Library Fellowship based in the National Library, mm-hmm. the Turnbull Library, 96-97. That was for research for the sort of conscience of the Wakefield book. Mm-hmm. And while I was there, uh, I heard about the oral history projects that the that it has and the where you could apply to get money. And I thought, uh, well, it'd be a good idea if we did something on writers. And uh, so when I became president, um, I got Jenny to we you know filled in the form and applied to. And um, yeah, so I ini- initiated that and applied, and then the, they got money for the first uh, raft of things. But and then I ceased being president and I lost track of it.
2: This thing I had written here about going through the gazettes and I found this note written by John Pascoe. There's not much joy in spending a lot of time administering a writer's organisation instead of writing as such. Have you got a comment to make about that, about the time you've expended yeah, on it, things? Yeah, it, it
1: can. In the, it, it does take a lot of time if you're going to do it properly. And my problem when I was president, for example, um, there was an honorarium, but not a lot, And at that time, the structure of the organisation was that while Jenny had to do all the admin, you know, solo, absolutely everything, um, and we did have a council, um, really the president was more the CEO as well. And I just found that, um, as I tend to do, uh, you know, I don't do things by half measure, I tend to get heavily involved in things, and I found that. I was spending well over half my time as president and it wasn't like some people who actually have got another job, you know, they've got a job and the writing is sort of added on to that. My whole income depended on
2: yes. what I was writing mm.
1: and so I found myself getting into um, financial difficulties and I just had to throw it up after a year mm. and I didn't really want to but um, that it actually is related to what John Pascoe said because I thought I I must have been um yeah, uh, deeply involved in writing the Wakefield book, which is a big book, and this was going by the wayside and uh, you know, at that point it was either being president of the society or getting the bloody book finished. Yeah. 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 And surviving.
2: Yes. It's a
1: bit different now. Um it's
2: uh 'cause how well how did how, how do you survive? If you've got a book that spans 11 years, you're obviously writing other books in between. But if you. What funded you to write the Wakefield
1: ah, well, book? Well, this, this, this could be an interesting uh, thing to relate. I got interested in the Wakefields because I did a book called New Zealand Explorers, which is uh, I retraced the journeys of eight early New Zealand explorers, and I took photographs. Of these areas and analyze where they've been from their letters and diaries and also current maps and then I persuaded Television New Zealand which uh, before it became a SOE um, to do a documentary series based on these and we ended up making three Uh, there was William Colenso and Stephen Buck and um, and Stephen Barker was the other one, uh, oh, uh, Thomas Brunner. Now, the Stephen one, he was on the Tory. He was the scientist and naturalist on the Tory expedition in 1839. Now, if you write a book about a guy, and it's mainly photographs and retracing his journey, and there's the other people involved, like William Wakefield and so on, you just have to refer to them. Mm. If you dramatise them, you suddenly, hang on, we've got characters here. Who exactly were they? Right. And I did a bit of research at the terminal, and I was astonished by what I was reading William Wakefield's diary, for example. And I thought, I wasn't brought up here and went through the education system and learned about Mm -hmm. the Wakefields. But anyway, I thought, I don't know, as far as I know, nobody's written about these people. It's some amazing stuff, you know. So I started to get interested. So I decided to give it a go, and um, I've not undertaken big projects without being fairly sure that I can get the support. I got a major grant from Crave New Zealand eventually, um, you know, like 36,000 to do the research and writing. Right. I got some money from the... Which
2: was what year? That sounds like a...
1: That was, that would have been um, early 90s.
2: Wow, so it was a lot of money. I got
1: money from the um, well, it was then I got think I don't know what they're called now, historical publications branch. They gave me some money. It was very useful to travel to the UK. Yes. Um, then I got the National Library fellowship for a year, oh, yes. and then and I got a book contract, which was a few thousand as mm-hmm. well. So this all added up. It was quite substantial, and allowed me to spend, you know, get deep into the research and to travel to the UK, and also there was a descendant of Daniel Wakefield, an old lady in Devon, who had accumulated all the family letters and so on. And I was going to stay with her two, three times. And at one one occasion, just before the National Library Fellowship, um, and I'd been to see her a few times and I told her that I'd got it. You know, she was really pleased. And um, I said, I'd like to come over there again before that, but I don't think I can afford it. So she had a lot of money, she had these different trusts and he said, well just come over, I'll pay you airfare, you know oh. so there were things like that um, it all added up I worked out, in terms of the actual time I spent and the um,
2: costs
1: awards. that I needed to get I, I, when I say cost, uh, time this is only at, at a fairly average income level not high income mm. level, just, just a reasonable one that I needed to get $120,000. And it's only recently that I've actually, through all those, that amount of money, which I think came to about ninety, but then there were royalties, then there were prizes, because I won three prizes for mm-hmm. it, and then there have been uh, money from the public lending right. And I think I've finally oh. covered the cost. But this gives you an idea yes. of how you've got to try and get these different things... Yeah. and how um, it comes, comes together, but it's oh, quite that's tricky. Oh,
2: remarkable, it really is. Yeah. The one thing we didn't talk about was um, some of these um, mid-career authors that do not belong to the New Zealand Society of Authors. Oh, yes. And why is that, and how how do we get those people involved?
1: Yes, this has been a, a growing problem. Mm-hmm. When I joined in 1970, or you know, in the years afterwards, anybody who wrote anything would always join pen. Yes. And uh, the all of the things that have happened, like, um, you know, public lending right and so on, that over the years, have been established by, you know, Penn and then say Working Hard. And all writers have benefited from this. All writers. What has happened over the years is, is, is concurrent with um, change in society, the free market society, neoliberalism and so on, so that... Um, and, and the destruction of the kind of trade union idea that, that people work together. No, no, you you look after yourself or all your immediate contacts and and so on. And so we see we see this in um, and I think it's exemplified by the whole kind of um, International Institute of Modern Letters and Victoria University Press set up in Wellington. Mm-hmm. Now, when we approached some years ago now, we approached Bill Mannheim was running it then. Uh, to encourage all the people who are coming through to join and he wouldn't do that and he took out one sub to cover the entire institute and um, a lot of those writers have come out of there have not joined and we have the astonishing situation recently where Eleanor Catton was asked to join and she has joined She's almost unaware of the Society of Authors because she'd been Uh, locked into this virtuous circle, Mm -hmm. this Victoria and done very well, and they do look after each other, but um, what is happening there is this exclusivity. It happens all the time throughout history, Mm -hmm. these elite groups who decide Mm -hmm. that they know uh, this is the way to do things, Mm -hmm. and don't feel they need to help other people and so on. So
2: how do you then, how do you attract them?
1: Well, it's very difficult because Someone like, um, you know, who's making a lot of money or being quite successful within these these groups Mm. feel they don't need need. Uh, the assistance, you see. So why should they be involved? But writers are also very individualistic people, all artists are, you know, Mm. and um, can't be bothered. Um, Certainly don't want to put any time into it. But a lot of these people who are not members are quite well off. They'd hardly notice um, paying us up.
0: You've been listening to Philip Temple in discussion with Deborah Shepherd on the New Zealand Society of Authors Oral History podcast. You can hear past episodes with a range of New Zealand writers, past and present, at the website authors.org.nz. You can also subscribe to the podcast on Google, Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple, or wherever you listen. This podcast was produced by Elizabeth Kirkby MacLeod with audio support by Yana Tanahu Owen for the New Zealand Society of Authors. NZSA would like to thank the Southern Trust for funding this season and also UNESCO and the Otago Community Trust for the funding to record new oral histories with authors based in Otago. Noturno by Ottorino Respigi, which you are listening to now, is performed by Justin Bird. I'm Karen Hay and this was a New Zealand Society of Authors oral history podcast. Ka kite anō.